Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm excited to share with you this week's guest, Ryan Smith. Ryan brings more than 15 years of extensive business experience in market evaluation, property analysis, management systems, due diligence, finance, and so much more. Ryan and his partners co-manage multiple investment funds, which specialize in investing in manufactured home communities or mobile home parks. And they participate in the ownership and management of over 20,000 mobile home park lots across the country. Today, Ryan and I dive deep into some really interesting topics, one of them being the difference in cash flow versus the value of cash flow. Ryan has a really unique way of breaking things down very simply and relaying them very eloquently. So I'm excited to jump into this week's episode. I think you'll find it really valuable. So without further ado, let's jump into it and bring Ryan on the show. All right, today I welcome on the show, Mr. Ryan Smith. Ryan, hey, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, hey, Ryan, for the listeners that may not be familiar with you, can you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got started in the world of real estate investing, and just take us through your journey? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'll also forewarn you, if any of your listeners struggle sleeping, then you may want to re-listen to this section and it'll it'll (laughs) hear what ails you. It's a good question. My family, the background, their background was in real estate. And so I grew up, you know, my family would buy fixed homes. And that was my contribution was peeling, you know, digging trenches and replacing wax rings on toilets and all that stuff. So oh, it's a blast. My role in the family kind of evolved into more analytics. I was a, ended up taking up computer programming as a hobby and would write software as a starting at around 10, 11, 12. So I started developing some software for my dad for his business that would help him analyze his investments more readily. I ended up building an actual software application that I ended up having more than 100,000 users of all the different software applications I ended up developing worldwide. Wow. They were all kind of mom and pop real estate investors looking to build wealth, generate income, all the things that I'm sure your listeners are. So it was an interesting dovetail from the core business of real estate and the technology and software that support that business. But to kind of fast forward ahead, so I went to college, got drafted professionally in baseball, six foot eight. At the time, uh, I was 250, not anymore. That <laughs> ship sailed. But the, uh, I played sports, so there was an athletic bent. Coming out of college, I had a choice to make if I wanted to pursue a career in athletics or basically a, a career with my brain or a compared but a career with my brawn, if you saw me today, is laughable. But <laughs> coming out of college, I, I had those options and I chose to build a business. And so at that time, my wife and I, who my wife is, yeah, if you ever hear from her, you'll think you got shortchanged in me. And you were right. She's <laughs> quite bright. She and I you knew real estate was a great place to be. We had capital, thankfully, because of the software company that I had started and savings. We had good credit. And then we had this tool that helped us. So we started buying pretty much right off the bat. We started buying single family residential 
long-term hold, not by fixed hold. We accumulated probably something in the range of 20 to 25 single-family houses in our early 20s. And we realized that model wasn't that scalable. We pretty quickly got beyond the, to a degree, the boundaries of what our parents had done. And so we were kind of paving new ground. And we realized pretty quickly that, you know, 25 or 20 single family properties, there wasn't that much margin improvement at that point. So we stopped and looked for something more scalable. And what we were looking for were things that could generate income, create wealth, capital appreciation. We wanted tax benefits, obviously, which is pretty standard in real estate. And then we wanted something that's non-correlated or something that's to the extent possible cycle resilient, not prone to the ups and downs, uh, parrot pursue or at par with the market. Yeah, right. So what we landed on, we researched, evaluated, studied, and believe it or not, we came out with this model that mobile home parks and storage were the best. The thing that was really interesting about mobile home parks when we first saw, and this was gosh, roughly 15 years ago, plus or minus, was what I found is I, I thought I found a moat hiding in plain sight or a barrier to entry hiding in plain sight. And what was staggering to me is the perception that it was for free, something of great value hiding in plain sight for free. That thing of value was the stigma, the fact that everybody Ah, everywhere hates mobile home parks. So they're needed everywhere. They're not allowed anywhere because they're hated everywhere. (laughs) And so we actually saw incredible value in the stigma. And the way I would posit it, it's a little blur, but I, I think it's helpful, is your listeners, for example, if we were to poll your listeners right now and say, do you prefer Coke or Pepsi? Please indicate your response, which one, Coke or Pepsi? There would be a mix. Some would Coke, some Pepsi, some would say none or neither. The point in it is both of those companies have probably spent close to, in their history, probably close to a trillion dollars in marketing. And let's just talk about something. We'll make up a, a detail. Let's say it's a 50-50 response. Okay, So after a trillion dollars of, of capital being spent to influence a decision to create a moat, a brand perception, they're only 50% effective. So if I were to also pull your audience today and say, how many of you would like a mobile home park built right next to your property where you currently reside? Probably pretty low. Yeah, it'd be 100% no. It's not to say your, your audience doesn't like mobile home parks. It's just you'd prefer not to be next door. Right. Property values, all the other things. So the point is, let's just say 100% response rate. And I didn't spend a penny to get you to think that way. It's free. And and that belief, that feeling, it's durable, it's strong. It's people will show up to meetings and oppose the development of new mobile home parks. So for me, I thought it, it was, I just thought it only made sense to deploy my capital behind the protection of such a clear, well-defined, durable moat that I saw laying in plain sight. And of course, I, you know, on a more, for some levity, my, we did have our relatives who said, well, if it doesn't work out, at least we'll have a place to live. It was kind of fun. But we started buying mobile home parks and then added storage over the years. And we've done quite a bit of business over the last 15 years. Yeah, awesome. Well, if I had to recap kind of your uh, story in a nutshell, if I had to replace wax rings at the age of 10, 12 years old, I would certainly learn how to code and write software myself as well, I would like to think. So yeah, I can certainly see how you fell into this world of real estate investing with the background in it with family doing the fix and flips and things. And it's just a natural progression for you to grow and scale and continue that journey. So really interesting to see. Now, I think it's important to note here, Ryan, that I actually heard you speak at the best ever real estate investing conference in Denver back in February this year. I was just looking through my notes a few minutes ago before we got on this call. And I was kind of seeing some of the things that I jotted down from this Ryan Smith character who I didn't quite know at the time, but it's really cool that that we get to kind of revisit and retouch some of those things. And one of the things I kind of wanted to ask you in one of the notes notes I had jotted down was you talked about why it's nearly impossible to earn yourself rich. I think that makes sense on the surface, but can you delve into that and exactly explain what you mean? 
Yeah, it was great seeing you at the best ever conference as well. I think they invited me so that everything else by appearance would seem best ever by comparison. I was the part that contributed to that, but it was a great time. Yeah, it's a great question. The short, to keep it really short, and I'll give some examples. So the obvious ones and kind of the low hanging fruit is roughly 80% of professional athletes, specifically NFL athletes, declare bankruptcy within two years of their last game which is a phenomenal stat. And some of that is poor planning, poor decisions, some of that. But ultimately, there's a headwind if you're trying to earn yourself wealthy. In short, I'll start it because of taxation in the tax regime that we currently have, which I'm not actually, I think it's wonderful towards real estate investors. It's very difficult to earn yourself wealthy because standing between you and savings or an accumulation, if that is what you're going for, is a lot of tax. You have spending, you have taxation, you have a lot of forces is buying for your dollar. A large one is taxation. So in short, wealth is what creates income generally does not create wealth. I'm all for income. And I I think we had had a conversation previously. And basically what I found is a lot of people, when they start investing in real estate, they're hyper-focused on cash flow. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with cash flow or income, but to an end. So if that's your principal goal, I don't agree with the model. But what I found is some people, and me included many, many years ago, that when people work in corporate America, they seek an alternative. And so they get so used to the paycheck mentality of whatever their pay cycle is that they actually take that preference into their real estate investing model. And so they go from expecting a check every other Friday or once a month or whatever their pay cycle is to expecting that out of their real estate. And in doing so, they only focus on the cash flow, which isn't the thing of greatest value. Because once again, it is very difficult to earn yourself rich. But if you focus on wealth creation or set another way, the value of cash flow, not cash flow, the value of cash flow, which is wealth, then from wealth, you can create all the income you need and more. It's a slight deviation. And that was probably the biggest shift in my focus that occurred many years ago. If I could go back, I would have learned that sooner. Well, I think what you're saying here is brings up a really interesting point because so many real estate investors out there are truly focused on that similarity, like you said, to their day job, you know, having that income stream every two weeks or every month or whatever it might be, they want to replicate that with their cash flow from their real estate. And many people, including myself, really interested in creating cash flow from their real estate so that they can replace their earned income with passive income. You know, we all kind of heard that spill, right? But what you're saying is the real value or the real goal here is to have wealth creation from that cash flow. Is that... I have that kind of right. Agreed. And if you would like, I can go one step further in the example. There's a surface level consideration, right, of of income versus equity. And that's a surface consideration. But how you decide what you want really determines, or I'll say what you decide is what you want, determines what your next step is. And there's two very divergent paths depending on what you decide. So let me give you this really overly simplified. But so somebody who solely wants cash flow would be motivated today to buy properties with higher cap rates, true or false. So higher cap rates for what reason? Why generally do you have higher cap rates? Because you have the properties maybe in tertiary markets. Higher risk, possibly. Higher risk, which is typically tertiary markets, lower diversity of employment, population trends that are not overly positive, lack of institutional capital, all of those things. So I'm going to overly simplify it. So let's say if you're a cash flow investor, your goal is to buy a 10 cap. Okay, Maybe it's nine, maybe it's eight, maybe it's 11, but let's just say it's a 10 
10 cap. Your okay. goal is to buy a higher cap. Now, let's assume that's the market cap for the next 10 years. So for every dollar of NOI cash flow um, you derive from that property is worth at a 10 cap 10 times. So every dollar on a yearly basis is worth $10 in your pocket. The other challenge you have to think is because of tertiary markets and all of that stuff, your borrowing costs are probably higher. So you may be buying at a 10 and you may finance at a six, so your spread is four. Now, on the other side, somebody who wants value, it's not to say the goal is to then on the flip side to buy at the lowest cap possible and basically be the greatest fool. That's not the goal. <laughs> the point is, if I'm buying, let's say I buy a quality asset in a quality market at a five cap, just to take a, an opposing view. Let's say Washington, D.C. at five cap. I think, let's say five cap will be Washington, D.C. for the next 10 years, just like the other example. Okay. Now, today, I might be able, because of the quality of the market, I might be able to borrow at three. I have two points of spread versus the four. So the four points of spread is more cash flow. But what is missed is at five cap, every dollar of NOI is worth 20 times. So okay, yeah. my, my dollar is two times as valuable as yours. Now, let me last put it all together to say, okay, so you have a little bit more cash flow. Great. That's today. That's not long term. That's just day one, right? So your in place cash flow is a little bit higher. Okay. Is cash flow, how is cash flow taxed? right? Ordinary income, typically. So you typically are pay tax. You have depreciation, maybe, or some of those things. But assuming no offsets or tax deductions, you're paying an ordinary income tax. So if I buy a property at five cap, for every dollar of NOI that I add, I'm creating $20 of value that is not taxed because it's unrealized. So you prefer to earn more in the portion of the business where it is taxed. I prefer to earn more in the portion of the business where it isn't taxed. And then somebody says, well, if it isn't, it, or meaning unrealized, and people will say, well, if it's unrealized, I can't spend unrealized monies. And that's not true. You can go and refinance the property. So if I refinance the property, how much tax do I pay on the refi? Zero. You said it. <laughs> There's a lot more to talk about there. But the point is what you are valuing and how you determine value in terms of your pursuits will really influence which way you go, the quality of the assets you buy long term. And I will tell you, having been at it for as long as I have, we do things very different today than we did 15 years ago in terms of the quality and the size of the properties and the markets they're in. And there's a reason. This, uh, this cash flow versus value is a pretty simple comparison. Like It's nothing new to many people out there. But when you kind of lay it out in those simple terms, it gets you to thinking. I can think in a personal scenario of mine, I once bought a duplex. It cash flowed well, you know, the three, four hundred dollars a month that it cash flowed was great, but it really didn't move the needle for me. You know, I'm not taking that out of my quote unquote business. I'm just reinvesting those cash flows back into the business, right? But in a couple of years later, when the markets significantly appreciated, the properties increased in value, I was able to refinance for a significant amount of money and refinance and go and buy another property. And that was real, really where like the bulk of my uh, gains came from. So when you're comparing and contrasting, it's easy to see which side has the uh, more weighted side, right? So correct. And that's our focus is value creation with income production, but it's not cash flow for all as the end all be all. Because typically what happens is when you first buy an asset, most investors prefer cash flow in the short run, but in the long run, they realize value or equity is far more important. 
sometimes it could take a 10-year view to learn that lesson, and 10 years is a lot to spend learning the lesson. So if you wouldn't mind, and if it would be helpful, if you think to your listeners, I can basically put it in a different way that's more granular and more actionable, if that would be helpful. But I'm I also sure you don't can do take... it much more clearly than I can. So yeah, please. I don't know about that, but it, I think in very small words and pictures. So it, it should, okay. be, it should yeah. be helpful. Um, so let me phrase it this way. So what I want to do is I want to convey the value of income, the value of cash flow as opposed to cash flow. So okay. I'm going to start with one unit. Let's say you have a, a single family house. Okay. And it's based, let's say the value is derived based on the income of the property. So the income model. Okay, so you have sure. a single family house and you add $1 of revenue on net revenue. So NOI on a monthly basis. So assuming, and, and for all of that we're about to go through, we're going to assume a five cap for value and fully recognizing it may be seven, six, eight per the market you're in and the asset sure. class, but let's just say five, which is 20 times. Okay, so 20 times is the multiple on income to get value. So in this example, let's say you have one unit and you buy a property, you find a creative way to raise, to increase the NOI by $1 a month. So that's $12 a year valued at a five cap. That's $240 of equity that you just created for a dollar. This is a lesson I teach my kids, the value of a dollar. If every dollar you found in a parking lot was $240, how hard would you look for dollars in the parking lot? I'd be looking really hard. <laughs> I would be too. But the point is, if it's only a dollar cash flow, you wouldn't look very hard because it's only a dollar and then I pay 40% tax. So I only have 60 cents. Well, a cash flow investor, it's 60 cents, but capitalized value, the value of money, the value of cash flow, it's $240. That's not taxed because it's not realized. So the difference is massively different. I said this, I think to you, we've had this conversation before. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have gone through life and you see somebody of significant means. And I know I have that they have significant means. They're perfectly tanned, perfectly toned, their teeth <laughs> are perfectly white, their hands are soft. <laughs> they have this semi-charmed life, but yet they have all... So you say to yourself, I work so much harder than them. Either they inherited it or they created it by knowing something that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. So what do yeah. they know that I don't know? Because a lot of the case, a lot of times that is the case. So what they know in many cases that most people don't know is the value of cash flow, the value of a dollar. So going back to this example, so if one unit, you can raise NOI $1 a month, it's $240. Well, then if you had 10 units and you do $1 a month, then it's $2,400. If you have 100 units, it's $24,000. If you have 1,000 units, it's a quarter million dollars, $240,000. So if you have 1,000 units, every dollar you raise, the net operating income each year is a quarter million dollars of wealth you just created for yourself. And that's $1, which is very That's $1. Right? Yeah. right. So let's say you do 10. That's for every for every $10 on a thousand units, you make two point roughly $5 million a year. So now what I want to do, because you're starting, what will happen is people start to get excited and they'll start, start to do the Dr. Evil laugh and it starts to get ugly. <laughs> so what I want to do is pull it back to say, okay, now let's go backwards. So what could be helpful is start with the end in mind. So if your listeners have a goal, a monetary goal of a dollar amount. So let's just say, for example, somebody wanted to create $10 million of wealth. And going back to something I said earlier, if you had $10 million of wealth, of powder that you could access of unrealized or realized, if you have $10 million right now, could you create income on it? Now, if you invested in a 3% return, that's 300000 a year. So wealth can produce all the income you ever want. But the key is wealth, because not only is the wealth, i.e. the $10 million in this example, not only is it 
generating income, but you can also lever it to generate additional income. So anyway, there's a tangent there, but going back to the $10 million. So let's say your goal is $10 million. Okay, not saying that's a good goal or a bad goal. Let's say it's 10. So at a 5% cap rate, you need $500,000 of NOI. Five times 10 million, 500,000. 5% times 10 million, 500,000. $500,000 of NOI stands between you and $10 million of net worth. Now that seems like a lot of money because it is. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. That's a lot of money. Okay. Let's keep breaking it down to actionable baby steps, things that okay. we can do. So 500,000 is what we're going for. Mind you, it, there's no time to this. It's as soon as you create it, that's what you got, assuming a 5% cap rate. So 500,000, so there's 12 months in a year, obviously. So that in that case, let's just break it down to $40,000 a month. So you need $40,000 a month of NOI to be worth or to create $10 million of new wealth. So let's say you have 1,000 units. Uh, maybe that's reasonable, maybe not, but you can adapt this as you see fit. But let's say 1,000 units. So 40,000 divided by 1,000 is 40. So you need $40 of new NOI a month on a thousand units to be worth $10 million. Now, we haven't applied any kind of timeline to this initiative, so let's do time. Let's say your goal is to create $10 million of net worth over the next five years. Well then, assuming once again, cap rate constant, all of these things, you take the 40 divided by five, which is $8. So let me button it up this way. In this scenario, which is overly simplified and there's other things considerations. But the simple view is if you had a thousand units and for the next five years, you found a way to grow the net operating income by $8 per month and not raising it $8 each month, but $8 a month for a year. And then the following year, another $8 a month for the year and then $8 a month for year. Right. Okay, so if you were to raise NOI, $8 a month for a year for five years straight on a thousand units, then you would have created $10 million of net worth for yourself or for whom else you was participating in your deal. And the question is, is that reasonable? Is that exciting? Is that reasonable? Is that doable? Is that worth your time? Is that worth your focus and tension? Is, is that accomplish your goals? I, there's a lot of questions to ask. For me and mine, I say yes. I love how you break that down so simply, right? Like you start with this, what might seem like a big goal. Okay, I need $10 million in value. Wow, that's a lot. How do I go about doing that? Okay, well, it's going to take $500,000, a good sum of money still. And then you start breaking that down and breaking it down. And then you're like, okay, well, you can easily see a clear path towards creating $10 million in value. So I love that. It's really a simplistic approach, but it's really powerful at the same time. Yeah, no question. I mean, if you look at earning yourself to $10 million just based on a 40% <laughs> let's say 40%, you know, plus spending and saving, you'd probably have to earn 25 million to save 10. And all we're talking about is the value of $8. You know, it's so funny you bring that up because this was, I tell a story when I'm a guest on other podcast appearances and it's like, the question is, what got you started investing in real estate? And one of my things was, Ryan, is I remember being a recent college graduate and I was sitting down like, okay, I've got this new big boy salary. This is really great. Let me calculate what this is going to do for me. Put in some projections, right? And, you know, I look 5% raise a year, you know, and pay increase in year 10, whatever it was. I model out this weird, probably somewhat mm -hmm. inaccurate projection, right? And I look at this end product and I think, okay, well, over the course of my 40-year career, I'll have earned, I can't remember what it was, let's call it, let's just say 10 million. And I looked at it, I'm like, it's going to take me 40 years to earn $10 million. And I just felt like that was kind of a disappointing figure, a disappointing timeline. So I was like, I've got to do something else. I've got to start figuring out how to create value for myself. And that's kind of how I got started. 
started investing in real estate. So a much longer approach, a much more roundabout, less concise approach than you just laid out. But yeah, I can kind of see, and that's how I was feeling at the time. Yeah, no, it's great to come to that realization because once again, what you believe, what you want, what you desire determines which path you take. And sometimes we think we know what we want and we make a determination, which in some cases is habit or Pavlovian response, and it leads us to an end we didn't want. And then you course correct and it basically bumping around in the dark. And so I fortunately had somebody show me some of these things years ago who was under no obligation to do so and did. It was an act of complete kindness and generosity that really impacted us. So I have no problem sharing it because I'm not the purveyor of all things, by any means, all things wise, smart, or proper. But I thankfully have been, I've been fortunate to know people who are. Well, you're essentially doing what this person did for you right now, Ryan, by coming on this podcast, giving your time for nothing in return. I'm not paying you. You're not being paid for coming on here. You're not even pitching any kind of product or anything. You're just coming on here purely to educate people and give back and try to impose this new mindset on other people that may have not heard this before, like this gentleman did for you back in the day. I say back in the day, like it might have been 40 years ago. No, <laughs> that's not what I mean. Yeah, uh, it was about 10. It was roughly 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago, but he's tremendous. Yeah, sure. So Ryan, you've buttoned up this whole model and you said, okay, well, this is the model to wealth creation. So how do I apply it? And you went out to the marketplace and you said, okay, well, can't necessarily apply it to single family fix and flip homes. So you're looking at different asset classes. You alluded to earlier, you really like mobile home parks and storage units. So tell us why that asset class, how this model works well with that and that business model. Yeah, that's a really great question. And it actually plugs and plays, for lack of a better term, with exactly where we just finished. And so if you now see the value of NOI, if you, through that exercise, you say, wow, I agree, there's something here. And I can give many more examples. There's a story about Jeff Bezos removing light bulbs and vending machines in Amazon warehouses, you know, which is neurotic. <laughs> it appears neurotic. I'm not calling him neurotic. The, the point in it is, his feeling is, do you really need to see there's lights in the place? You, you don't need the light bulbs. There's the cost of the bulb, there's the cost to replace, there's the energy. If by removing them, that because NOI is not just new revenue, it also could be cutting an expense. Yeah, right. So I think off of memory, he found a savings of about a million dollars a year by removing light bulbs from vending machines. So if Amazon traded at 20 times earnings, that's $20 million of value creation and light bulbs and vending machines. So how neurotic is he? He's not. This principle we're talking about, the value of cash flow, is not new. It's not novel. It's just not also not all that widely known, but it's also not obscure. But the point in all of it is, okay, so assuming this is true and assuming you value it and, and you think it has merit, well, then to me, I think it would stand to reason that I would want to pursue the asset classes that give me the best path at least historically, and what I think will be the same in the future or the case in the future, the best path towards NOI growth. I want to buy the types of assets that give me the best shot at NOI growth for the longest period of time. So historically, over the last, really since 1998, the number one best asset class for NOI growth purely, not cap compression and all of this other stuff, but NOI growth from point to point has been self-storage, number one. Um, number two is mobile home parks. Number three is apartments or, or multifamily is number three. So more specific to the data, assuming a base case, and, and I'm quoting rough numbers, but let's say your your base case is 1998. In this data, for those who want to access it, is not ours. It's not proprietary. It's from Green Street Advisors. Um, SNL Financial has it too, but this is public data. But in short, if you go from 1998 to present, if you start and say, okay, 
property had $100 of NOI, or let's say an industry, all properties in the industry had $100 of NOI in um, 1998. Self-storage today, off of memory, is roughly $230 of NOI for the same store. So the industry went from $100 to $225, let's say. So pretty significant growth. Mobile home parks, I believe, off of memory are roughly $220. So you have $225, you have $220. So mobile home parks and storage are really close. I think apartments or multifamily is roughly $160. So it went from $100 to $160. And then off a small retail are really the top three are self-storage, mobile home parks, and then apartments in terms of NOI growth. So for me, the reason I picked the path that I did for storage and mobile home parks ultimately is I feel like based on the model I want to execute that is in my best interest and the best interest of our investors is the model we're executing. So then I want to deploy that model in an asset class that gives me the best chance to accomplish the model. And that's why I did that. I love how you're like uh, very data-driven, very analytical. You're doing things for a very specific reason, driven by the numbers, because that's what you're doing this for, right? It's not like, oh, everyone else is syndicating apartments or, you know, everyone else is investing in retail centers or whatever it might be. You're very data driven here and doing things with an intention. Yes. The whole goal is to have a point in doing what you do and to the extent possible, start with the end in mind. What do you want and then what do you need to do to get it? And then take the next best step and course correct and get better over time and you'll make mistakes, but that's that's fine. Yeah, sure. Well, let's look at like a, a realistic path for one to get involved and in, say self-storage or mobile home parks, one or the other. So going back to our scenario earlier, we said, okay, we want to create $10 million in value. We need $500,000 in capital to begin with, right? To control these units and all that stuff. Could you outlay just like a very simplistic plan for one to really get started investing in an asset class like this? It's a really good question because on one hand, you want to have a model, build a model, and to a degree be informed and know what you're doing. But on the other hand, the tension is you'll never know enough. And so there's a lot of people who are and remain on the sideline because they always feel like they need one more piece of information or one more resource. So there's this tension where, and, and depending on your personality or character, who you are as an individual, you'll either jump in with reckless abandon or you'll stay on the sideline <laughs> and not take action or somewhere in the middle. So so I would encourage, we have a model in a, in a lot of things um, because of that inclination I just described, and it's inherent to me as well, where you always feel like you need more, you can do better before it's ready. We yeah. have this kind of un, unstated 80% rule where if you're going back on a, back and forth on a design, as long as it reaches the 80% mark, you know, you can spend 400% of the time going from 80 to 100%. And if there's an aspect of that I don't like because it appears to be settling, but at the same time, action is sometimes more valuable than inaction. So we have this, sometimes my wife will say, hey, is it 80%? You know, and I'm like, okay, point taken, I'll get on with it. So anyway, build a model get informed and ultimately pull the trigger knowing you're going to make mistakes. No one deal will make you or break you. So take the pressure off. You'll, you'll make mistakes. There'll be other deals. And if you don't quit and you're tough and you have perseverance and a long-term view, you'll figure it out. You'll be happy that you you didn't quit. Yeah, sure. I like that. I think I like that 80% rule you speak of, right? Because people can get stuck in this analysis paralysis phase or like you Correct. say, really needing like that one more conference or that one more seminar, really needing to learn 1031 exchanges or complicated tax strategies or things when all reality that could just benefit even more greatly by jumping in, getting started with that base level education, of course. For sure. To your point, and to further evidence that one of the things I think, and this is just my opinion, but I think something that some people do wrong, and there's a lot of investments that are 
solicited online and, and whatnot. And I'll say it this way, just loosely, there's not a single, any model that you've built for any property you've bought. The only question for a model is how wrong is it? Okay. <laughs> there's not a single person who's ever built a model where the property hit the dollars and cents specifically each year as stated in the model. No. <laughs> It'll never happen. So that's the only question with a model is how wrong will it be in the real world? And by the way, outperforming is still wrong. The model was wrong. You outperform. The point in it is you have to have a confidence. You have to have a team. You have to have knowledge and all of these things. But the point is when we buy a property, we have a plan, but we also have confidence in our ability to adapt, manage risk, course correct over time, knowing that no one model will run a property. I don't put Excel in charge of running, you know, an Excel spreadsheet will not run my property. Yeah, sure. So Ryan, you've kind of taken this whole approach towards, you know, creating value through increasing your NOI and your preferred asset classes, which are self-storage and mobile home parks. Now to really get into the weeds of things, you obviously syndicate these deals. Is that right? We do funds, which are many to one, many investors investing in many properties through a fund structure. So it's a diversification component you know, of yes. 20, 30 some odd properties. Sure. And I think many of the listeners listening in right now are familiar with syndication, whether that's multifamily properties or mobile home parks. And for the most part, I think that structure is pretty well similar, if I understand. Yep, similar. Sure. So when talking about syndicating these deals, what sets good syndicators apart from not such great syndicators? You know, what are some of the secrets of syndicating large asset classes like these? Yeah, it's a great question. Good and bad is a subjective. It's tough to determine what is good and what is bad because my what I determine may be different than yours. But what I would say is there are signs of experience or lack thereof, and those are probably more clear at least in my opinion. So it's an interesting irony. So I had, for example, a prospective investor probably six months ago call me and he said, I'm looking at making an investment with you and I'm looking at another vehicle. But they give me all this information, all these underwriting models, all these forecasts, all these financials, and you don't. And he said, I, I really like that. And so my comment to him was very, and not off-puttingly, but I said, then why call? If that's a problem, then why are we talking, right? I mean, it just, it didn't make sense to me. But he was curious why we didn't. And I said, well, you know, it's my opinion that doing those things creates more risk for you, although it may not look that way because it looks like transparent, open, honest, all of this stuff. And I'm not trying to be non-transparent in those things. But at the end of the day, like I said a minute ago, the only question with an economic model that you're putting out there is, the only question is how wrong is it? So the short story in a summation is, I think when an experienced operator raises capital, the focus, and I believe the focus should be on the team, the quality of the people, the experience, for lack of a better term, you're boarding a ship sailing to a destination and you will, weather will rise on the, you know, on the journey. So how stable is the ship? But ultimately, you know, the, the Titanic's an example. The question is how well can it be navigated to a successful end? The skill of the crew should be the focus, not the construction of the ship uh, necessarily. So new operators, new syndicators typically do, and, and this is what I've just noticed, and this is my opinion, but I believe they put a lot of focus on everything but themselves for fear of the, their experience not holding muster or not passing muster, uh, rather. So yeah. they, the point in it is they say, see, look at the property, look at this, look at all this data, look at all this stuff. 
I think, and I will also say as an encouragement to them, your experience, whatever it is, you have good things about your background. Tell the story. What what are those good things? What are the things you might not be good? But be honest, open, transparent. But I think the focus should be on who the operators are, who the people are, not these models, which the only question is how wrong are they? Because I don't think that's a good thing when investors are investing based on the perception of a return where the only question is how wrong are they? Like you say, Ryan, you and I could model out the same property and we would come up with possibly very different projections, right? And I could promise 18% IRR returns all day. And while you are obviously a much more experienced operator, you may know some more things than I do. You might come out of it and say, well, look, we're going to feel comfortable providing 14% IRR returns over the course of whatever. Now, mine may look better on paper, but yours is likely more accurate, right? So it just kind of depends. Correct. That's when you get into comparing the team and the business plan and track record and the experience and all that kind of thing. Yep. I think a measured approach, there's a right investment for people. There's a wrong investment. I'm not the right one for everybody. I don't try to be. But what I do try to do is manage risk for investors. And that was my comment to the gentleman is by putting all this information out there, if they do not perform and one investor gets upset with the performance, that could be risk for everybody else in the fund. So we try to manage risk for all investors in the way we do things. That's a focus. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And it's uh, just another one of those caveats coming from an experienced operator like yourself to have that foresight and say, hey, you know, I'm protecting you by not doing this or by yep. doing this this way. Correct. So, yeah, really good stuff. Yep. Well, before we wrap up here, just kind of talk about what you're doing with Elevation Capital, how you invest, kind of what you're doing there. Yeah, we're just building. We continue to do basically everything we talked about on this call. So, yeah. I mean, it, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, we are executing the strategy we've discussed uh, through mobile home parks and storage. We have Fund 7 right now, which is we're raising $150 million. I think we have about $108 million or so committed today. So, anyway, we're buying assets. We're improving them, adding value over time through Fund 7. And then there will likely be a Fund 8. And anyway, more over time. So, we just continue to, I'd say, pragmatically at a measured pace grow the portfolio and execute the strategy and serve investors to the best of our ability. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And really quickly for the audience members that may not understand when you're raising money in a fund versus for a specific deal, just really quickly explain the differences there. The fund model is you're investing into all assets that the fund owns. So it's much more of a portfolio approach as opposed to a single asset. And so our model, typically with a single asset, what I see a lot of, and this has nothing to do with just a single asset, but I see a lot of it is the model is to buy the property, make it better, and then sell. Our model, buy the asset, improve it, and then refinance and not sell and return capital. So we want to return the capital to investors from refi proceeds so that they then ideally have all their money back as soon as possible and then retain ownership of the asset with a zero basis from an investment standpoint. So our whole goal is to get to an infinite return as quickly as possible, knowing that at that point, you invest. if we sold that property after years of infinite, investors would hunt us down and not have kind words to say. Because at that point, you have no capital at risk. You have a great rate of return. We have other periodic refinancings, which are tax advantaged over time. I will never get the call say, yes, please stop this. Yeah, so sure. It's just a different model. <laughs> those checks I'm getting in every month, Ryan, let's just go ahead and put yeah. an end to those. Sell the property. I'm done yeah. with this thing. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to pay tax, stop the income, and take new risk on buying a new asset. There you go. Yeah. Of course. Right. <laughs> Well, those are the bad reviews you want in your business, right? For, uh, you know, selling right. a performing asset like that. So yeah, sure. Exactly. 
Yeah, you got it. Well, Ryan, hey, it's been a lot of fun catching up with you. You have a really unique sense and ability to kind of, uh, very unlike me, eloquently and simply outlay kind of terms and explain things. So it's been a lot of fun kind of talking with you, learning how your mind works and just kind of seeing these things spelled out as you do. So really appreciate your time doing that. Well, as we're wrapping up here, we like to finish every episode with a lightning round, just a series of questions we'll fire at you. Are you up for it? Sure. All right. Well, the first question in the lightning round was, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? It's a good question. I'd say the biggest hurdle and hurdles have always been what you don't know. And the way I have overcome it is consistently is through relationships, through people that I knew who gave me a tidbit of information at just the right time, or I held it until I needed it. But the hurdle has been for me, not resources. It's been more resourcefulness, which is knowledge and and know-how, which relationships have brought for me. Yeah, sure. Well, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Um, habit, probably not as much as a characteristic in that I'm open to trying new things. I'm a big believer in taking the next best step, whatever that is, easy or hard. And then I have a very high pain tolerance, which is all of those are helpful. <laughs> it's probably really helpful in the world of real estate investing, huh? <laughs> it is yeah. all things. Yeah. Well, do you have an online resource you'd find valuable in your day to day? Maybe I'll kind of dig deeper here. Tell us a little bit about that software program that you had developed early on in your career and, and what that did exactly. And do you still use it today? I mean, would that be a resource that you recommend to listeners? It was a good one. I stopped developing it like 15 years ago or so because it was taking my time away from creating NOI and it was only creating cash flow. Uh, I like that. Good segue. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's true. And so I, it was a great tool and help people back into purchase scenarios and, and kind of start with the end in mind, basically. So it was, it was a great application, but um, at this point, probably outdated and 15 years old uh, yeah. or so. But yeah, that's yeah. probably it. Good. Well, I tried to find the software, but uh, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. good. Well, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? So many good books. One of my good friends who I hold in high regard um, is a guy named Greg Brenneman. He's the president of Continental Airlines that helped start. He basically turned around Continental Airlines in the 90s. And he went on to lead Quiznos. He was the CEO, I believe, of Quiznos, Burger King. Uh, he's the director presently at Home Depot. And he's just one of the neatest men I've ever met. And he wrote a book years ago called Right Away and All at Once. And it's a book on how to turn things around or take action on one sheet of paper. And then I would also add, my wife and I have a business plan for our marriage, not financial, but just uh, we call it a business plan. We call it a go forward plan is, is actually our name for it. And it's also based on the same book. So we have objectives and we have a one page sheet of paper. We meet quarterly and revise it, but it's also based on that. You want to tell us a little bit about that? About the go forward plan? Yeah. So we, we divide it into five Fs, which is suspect, but um, it's faith, family, fitness, finance, and friends. So faith being, you know, there's a whole category there, finance, objectives, goals. And then we categorize under each one of the fives, each one of the five Fs. We then have what we call red, white, and blue chips, which are, you know, you could do rocks, pebbles, sand, or you have a weighted a weight in terms of importance. So we start at the top of what's most important under that category. So I have my go forward plan. My wife has hers and then we have ours as a couple. And so then we meet on a quarterly basis and we say, okay, well, how are you doing in this? How are you doing this? How can I support you in this? How can I support you in that? In some cases, you make a plan and wasn't practical. So you say, okay, well, I was um, overestimated my capability to do this. But the point in it is, you know, especially with husbands and wives or relationships, it's you think you know what you're doing and where you're going and what the other party's thinking. But it it has been very helpful to have a, a marriage plan. And so we, 
have a um, Bible study we host at our house every Monday night, which is part of our faith component. And we have anywhere between 24 and 30 people that come on Monday nights. And we actually, on an annual basis, we do a go forward plan with the couples in that study. So they prepare theirs and then they actually have to present it to the group, which allows everybody to learn more about them and each other. But then it's also peer review. So you can say, well, that might not, you might want to be a little more specific there. That's a little too vague. So it's let's pin it down a little bit more. So it's also really good to do within a context of a group. I'm like a goal setting junkie. So I love hearing about those kinds of things. Yeah, really cool strategy there. I'll have to uh, pick up that book. It's one I've never heard of. And sounds like I might learn something about this. Let's call it goal setting strategy, if you will. So yeah, for what it's worth, just to throw this out there, I know you're in Houston. Greg Brenneman actually lives, I believe, up in the woodlands. So he's in your community. And he's one of the greatest guys on earth. Great. Yeah. Maybe we'll uh, have to get him on the podcast and talk about uh, business-like stuff, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, Ryan, last question in the lightning round. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell yourself? I would go back to tell myself to go into the future and access this podcast and listen what I told. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Listen to what I said, which is what I should have known, but didn't. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, Ryan, hey, It's been a lot of fun having you on, lots of great insights, kind of some paradigm shifting mindset mentality stuff here that we went over. So if the audience members want to learn more about you, connect with you, learn about what you're doing, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, so our our website's Elevation Capital Group, and then my email's ryan at elevationcg.com, and my direct line is 407-602. 7662. So reach out anytime if I can be helpful. Ryan, awesome stuff. Well, as we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with the audience members? Maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I thought you did a great job um, and really appreciate the opportunity. I would just encourage people to, I mean, ultimately all of this relies on your belief in yourself. And so you have the capability. You and I both know it. And so believe it and go do it. It's as simple as that. Awesome. Love it, Ryan. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun having you on. Sounds great. Thanks again. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Ryan Smith. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you like what you heard, please go over and leave a rating and review on whichever platform you're listening on. For all those resources we mentioned in today's episode, you can find those in the show notes. And as always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, visit www.jacobayers.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.